As you return to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 is found, if you've picked up a Bible, uh, underneath the back table back there on page 1036. I'll say, I, I do know we have some uh, union, uh, parents of union students visiting with us this morning, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I've been here 14 years now, and around that time I, I, I planned, generally in my mind, a 15-year plan to work my way through the Bible, because I'm obsessive-compulsive. And uh, so here we are in year 14, so there were certain books that I thought, I, I'll put those off until later, that's why I'm preaching through Revelation and Tom's preaching through Song of Solomon right now. So there are certain books that, that waited, but the day has come. And uh, so here we are, and we've been working our way through Revelation now for uh, 18 different sermons through the first 13 chapters, so that today marks uh, number 19 of 27 through the book, and our text this morning is chapter 14. So if you turn there, I, I, I'll ask if you one more time would just stand so that you might honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. Would you hear one more time the reading of God's word from Revelation 14? Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard with a voice from heaven, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of the God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you help us this morning? Lord, we want to be those who hear and understand and receive and love and obey your word. So we just ask for your help. Help us to be those kinds of people. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds so that we might hear and see and understand and love it. Move our hands and our feet and our heads and our mouths that we might embrace and obey and live this out. Lord, would you use your word this morning to be like seed planted in fertile soil in our hearts so that it might bear fruit bear forth the fruit of obedience in our lives, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Lord, do everything you desire to do through this text for our good and for the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, there's a scene in which Christian and hopeful are held captive in a dungeon by the giant despair. And they are despairing. And as they're there, Christian doesn't feel like he can go on. The despair is great. He's growing weary and doing good. He's wondering if he can continue in steadfast obedience. He's, he's struggling when suddenly he remembered something. Here's how Bunyan writes it. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out with this passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said, hopeful, that's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key he opened that door also. And he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went very hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed, but that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked giant despair, who hastily, rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail. For his fits took him again, so they could by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway again, and so were safe, because they were out of his jurisdiction. Now obviously Bunyan's point in that episode of his book is to show that there are times in our lives when believers grow weary of doing good. 
There are times in our lives when we don't feel like we can press on. There are, there are times in our lives where it's simply hard to be steadfast in obedience to the Lord. And Bunyan writes this to remind us that it's in those times when we're growing weary and we don't feel like we can press on. Maybe we're, maybe we're suffering. It's in those moments that, that we reach out and cling to the promises of God as if they are keys that will allow us to exit this dungeon of despair in our lives. And I think in many ways that's what we find in Revelation 14. Now consider what's happened to this point in the book of Revelation. I mean, if you've been here for a number of weeks, you, you may feel like every sermon is something like second verse, same as the first. Because as I've discussed this with the interns throughout the week, it feels like every week I'm making the point believers are going to suffer, but it's okay. Christ holds them in His hand. He will preserve them. And, and, and they're called to be faithful even to the point of death, but it's okay. If you die in Christ, you're a conqueror. And yet, what do you say to people to encourage them week after week after week, or in this case, as, as the early readers of this book would have heard chapter after chapter after chapter, just John continuing to march out this message of, you're going to suffer. You have an enemy, the dragon, and he's been cast down from heaven. And that's good news for heaven, but that's bad news for the earth and the sea. For he knows his time is short, and so he is seeking those whom he may devour. He's employing the beast oppressive states and social structures, human institutions to carry out his wrath against the people of God. He's, he's employing uh, the second beast, this, this false prophet, to, to deceive and come at you. And many will be deceived and, and many will walk away showing themselves never to have been truly born again. What do you say to those people then to encourage them? Well, in Revelation 14, I think the Lord gives us a weapon, a key if you will, to use Bunyan's terminology, to fight, a, a key to help us press on and escape despair. He gives us a promise, a reminder of what awaits us. But unlike the Pilgrim's Progress, that's not the only means the Lord gives us in this chapter. He does give us a promise that, as Christian said, can be like a key opening the gate of despair so that we might run out and escape. But he also gives us a warning. He gives us a warning of what his enemies are going to face. And there are going to be times in our life when we need each of those means. There are times in our life when we're going to have to hold to the promises of what await us as believers. There are times in our life that we're going to need to be reminded of what Lance read earlier in the service, that the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And there are times in our life as well that we're going to need to take up as a key as well, warnings about what Christ's enemies are going to suffer, that we might find strength to fight against sin. So this morning, I simply want to do three things very simply. Show you the promise that I think this chapter holds up. Show you the warning that I think this chapter holds up. And then just simply make this application that I've basically already made to start the service. We need to employ both of these things as we press on. So let's first see the promise. And here's, here's the way I want to word this. The promise is this. Those who hold fast in faith, obviously I mean faith in Christ, those who hold fast in faith in this age will dwell with the Lamb and know His blessings forever. Because I really only have two points. I felt again the liberty to make them really long. Those who hold fast in faith in this age will dwell with the Lamb and know His blessings forever. That's what I think we see 
at the beginning of chapter 14. In chapter 14, it begins, John saying, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. John sees the scene of, of a number of people. He specifically mentions 144,000. Now, if you were here when we were going through uh, the book earlier, you'll know that the 144,000 were mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. And I gave you at that time probably eight reasons why I thought this represented the whole church of God, all of the redeemed. So I'll just remind you quickly... I don't think the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are some remnant or special little group among all the people of God. Rather, I think the 144,000 is John's way of saying all the people of God. These are all the redeemed. Uh, you'll remember in Revelation chapter 5 when John heard someone say, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and says, Then I saw one standing as a lamb who had been slain. It's not as if in that moment, John heard a lion and turned and said, oh, it's not a lion, it's a lamb. What he turned and realized was that the lion is the lamb. When the same way then, John uses the same thing in Revelation 7, and he hears the number of those the Lord has marked out as his own, the ones that he's put his seal on their heads. Again, I've said this is not some physical mark, this is just the Lord's way of saying, you're mine. And when he heard the number, the number was 144,000. But in Revelation 7, he says, I turned and saw a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and all, from every nation and all tribes, peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You see, the 144,000 were all of the people redeemed from all the nations. Again, I've noted that in the book of Revelation, numbers function in a symbolic way, and the number 12 and multiples of 12 are always used for the people of God. That's why there are 12 apostles. That's why there are 12 tribes. That's why when you get to the new creation, when the people of God are going to dwell with the Lamb, it's measured in terms of 12,000 this, 144 that. Well, that's why the people of God, if you want to say all the people of God in apocalyptic literature, you want to say all the people of God in the book of Revelation, 12 times 12 times a whole number, 1,000, gives you 144,000, a way of saying all of the redeemed. So here are all of the redeemed standing on Mount Zion, which is used in the Bible to represent a place in the presence of God, a place where we're free from condemnation, a place where we're free from the tyranny of Satan and sin and death. This is how Hebrews, 12, or Hebrews 2 rather uses this imagery. We've come to Christ. We've been freed from condemnation. We're standing with Him at Mount Zion in His presence. So John sees this view then of people, all of the redeemed, standing before the Lamb, on Mount Zion, in His presence, free from condemnation, and they're singing a song of victory. He says in verse 2 that they were playing harps. Now that might throw us a bit, because I don't think we think of harps as being employed in a song of victory, do we? Few soldiers, I think, would march back from victorious warfare and say, somebody break out a harp. 
you know, right? I mean, that's not the imagery we think of. Most pet bands don't have a harpist. However, the harp in the Bible is, is different from what we think of. Not that there's no occasion for the harp. It's a great instrument. And I know we have members and have had members who play the harp, and I, I love what you do. Um, but the harp in the Bible is different from the kind of harp we have now. It's probably something closer to our guitars. A stringed instrument that's used for, for joyous occasion. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 150 finds it natural to bring out the harp and the loud crashing cymbals together. We wouldn't think of that, right? But, but this is an instrument of praise. This is an instrument of celebration. This is an instrument of, uh, of joyous victory. And so when he sees the scene in heaven, they're celebrating the redeemed of all the nations are celebrating before the Lamb the victory they have as the redeemed. This is why verse 3 tells us no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There's some songs this morning that if you're an unbeliever, you may have sung with us. You may have sung some, some, some words you saw on the screen. You may have sung them of what it means to be redeemed in Christ, but you can't really know the song unless you've been redeemed yourself. Something about mouthing the words and knowing the experience. Well, that's why no one but the 144,000 can learn this song because this is simply the redeemed of the earth celebrating before the Lamb, celebrating in victory. We're told a number of specific things about this group of the redeemed, some characteristics about them in verses 4 and 5. First, we find out that they were faithful. They were faithful in their lives. Look at verse 4. It's these who have not defied themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, I don't think... The idea here is that we're to press this language literally and say this must be a special group of only celibate people, those who've, who've never been intimate with someone physically. But, but that's, I don't think, the language. In fact, if you want to press that then, not only would this be a celibate group, but it would be literally only men, right? As the language says, they had not been with women. But I don't, I don't think that's the point. I don't think John here is saying this is a group of celibate men only. I think this is John's way of saying these are faithful. I think what John is doing is he's picking up on the image of adultery that goes through the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, God pictured himself as a husband toward his bride Israel. The same kind of thing that we find uh, the language of Ephesians 5. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. In fact, this book of Revelation is going to end with a wedding feast when the bride is going to be given to her groom, the lamb. And so, the imagery that then developed when the people of God in the Old Testament were unfaithful to God was, yes, idolatry, but not simply idolatry. It was also called adultery. Several times, the Lord will rebuke His people for idolatry and say, you're playing the whore or, or the harlot. Harlotry and whoredom, uh, the adulteress. That was the common imagery of the Old Testament. I think then, even in this book, I'll add even in this book, the enemies of God are often pictured as the harlot. 
the, the beast, this human institution that's, that's being used to seduce people, to sexual morality being seduced, to, to try, used to seduce people to deny Jesus Christ is, is uh, this, this, this woman who is a harlot. So I think in contrast, what he's saying here is the people of God are those who have kept themselves pure, are those who have been faithful, waiting for the day when they will be presented to their groom spotless, blameless, without blemish, or as the image here is used, as virgins. So these are a faithful people. Not only that, they are an obedient people, aren't they? He says, it's these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgin, and it is these who have followed the Lamb wherever He goes. The imagery of discipleship in the Bible is that of following. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The idea isn't simply that we're to walk. And Jesus, yes, did a lot of walking, but the idea of discipleship wasn't, just, just walk behind me and all will be well. No, the idea of following me is imitate me, obey me. These are a group then who have not only been faithful to the Lord, but they have obeyed Him. The text continues, These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now, the idea of first fruits can mean simply a group on occasion in the Bible. So the first fruits mean there's more to come, but, but also the language of first fruits in the Bible can come on occasion simply to mean an offering given to the Lord. I think that's how it's functioning here. These are a people who have been offered to the Lord. Remember the language of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What's your spiritual act of worship? It's not that you go and offer a sacrifice. Don't bring an animal, but offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That's your offering. This is the idea here. These have offered themselves to God. And then finally, verse 5, And in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. Unbelievers are those who deceive and those who are deceived. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, We all know the truth. We know the Creator. He's made Himself known. And when God sets out to make Himself known, He makes Himself known. There's nobody in the earth who doesn't know there is a God, the God of the Bible, and He created all things. But what unbelievers do is they suppress the truth of God and their unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. And they even go about convincing others of that untruth as well. They are deceived and are deceivers. In contrast, the people of God, uh, there's no lie found in their mouth, for they are blameless. We are those who accept the truth and those who speak the truth. So, so what you have here then in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, are the people of God who are faithful, obedient, devoted to the Lord, who are true, and they're victoriously celebrating before the Lamb. What John is showing us here is this is what awaits those who conquer. Yes, they may have endured persecution. Yes, they may have suffered at Rome's hands or, or whomever's hands throughout this age. Yes, they may have undergone great suffering. But this is a picture of testimony to what Paul says in Romans 8.18. The suffering of this world is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. What is that glory? Here's a picture of it right here. The redeemed victoriously celebrating before the Lamb. In verse 13, we can read that they're resting from their labors. This is a picture of glorious rest with the Lamb. This is our promise. Hold fast, endure, be faithful 
Hold to your faith, and we will dwell in the presence of the Lamb and know His blessings forever. But that's not the only message of Revelation 14. There is also a warning. And the warning, I will word this way. Those who hold fast to the world and reject the Lamb will face the eternal torment and furious wrath of the Lamb. Those who hold fast to the world and reject the Lamb will face the eternal torment and furious wrath of the Lamb. There's, there's a thought that says God, as He's revealed in the Old Testament, is a God of wrath. And God, as He reveals Himself in the New Testament, is a God of love. But if you want the, the worst picture the most furious and violent picture of God's wrath in the Bible, it may well be what we're looking at this morning in Revelation 14. In verses 6 through the end of the chapter, with an exception of verses 12 and 13, which we'll look at in our, in our last point, but from verse 6 all the way through verse 20, what you have is this build-up to God's wrath. It starts with the scene of, of the first angel in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So the gospel, this symbolizes the gospel going out to all the nations. Jesus said, remember, in this age, the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. So, so we're preaching the gospel to all the nations. But in verse 7 then, what we find is that the gospel comes with a demand. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory for this reason, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now sometimes we talk about the offer of the gospel. And I don't want to say you should never use that language because it's probably been used throughout the entire history of the church. And so I don't want to say... Let's dismiss that and use something else. But I will say this. In our age, in our day, in the way we use words, I don't think the offer of the gospel communicates as accurately as we want it to. Because how does offer communicate in our day? Doesn't it communicate as if simply, here's something you can have, but if you're content with what you have, that's fine. So if someone says, I'd like to make an offer to you, you can have my car. For $1,000. And you go, I'm content with my car and $1,000 in my pocket. Then that's fine. No one says, I'd like to offer you my car for $1,000. And if you don't take my offer, you're going to be executed. Right? And say, offer hardly seems fitting. What verses 6 and 7 remind us of the gospel is the gospel is not simply the, an offer of eternal life, though it is that. The gospel comes with a demand. A demand that if it's not met, will bring about punishment. Right? The gospel is the good news. The good news to an unbelieving world who are under God's wrath that they can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that though we're sinners and God's holy and His wrath is against us, that, that God the Son, that God sent His own Son into the world, that, that God the Son took on flesh 
And as the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived a perfect life that none of us lived, perfectly obeying God, that he then died on the cross to pay for the sins of anyone who would believe in him. That on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, you can be reconciled to God and not suffer his wrath. That's the gospel. But don't think of it merely as an offer. That's a demand because it continues this way. If you don't repent and believe, the wrath of God remains on you and you're going to know it in full strength in hell. You see, the gospel is a demand. So in verses 6 and 7, we see this demand of the gospel. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. He's, he's ready to cash in on this demand. You must have met. In verse 8, we're reminded that this world and its systems are just going to fall away under God's judgment. Verse 8, And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon was a nation in the Old Testament that held Israel captive. Remember, they, they called upon Israel to worship their king as a god. Nebuchadnezzar even had this statue, bow down. Uh, a nation that, that made much of themselves. So at the point that Revelation's being written, Babylon's off the world scene. Um, Babylon's just... just so, so you read this and you think, well, sure, is he talking about Babylon? What you need to understand is that Babylon functions in the Bible as the symbol of this people who are against God. A people who have made the people of God their enemies. That, that, that might persecute them. That might make much of itself exalt itself against God. At the time... The Revelation 14 is being read. No doubt the people of God are looking and saying, Rome's the Babylon of our day. And they would have been right. But it's repeated throughout history. Uh, Rome has now come and gone. And, and no doubt many other human uh, oppressive states and social structures and institutions have arisen and defied the Lord and made much of themselves and, and abused God's people. And many people thought, if I trust in this, if I trust in Rome, if I bow to the Caesar, if I worship him as God, then he'll offer me financial security and all kinds of other security and, and he'll offer me pleasure. And so they were willing to say, no, no, I, I don't claim Jesus Christ at all as my Lord. Rome is my king. Caesar is my king. And they thought that would be their salvation. They would look around and, and watch Christians suffer under Rome's wrath. And they would think, this will give me security so that I don't have to suffer the wrath of Rome. But now verse 8 is clearly announcing, Babylon has seduced you, offering you much, and it's as if you, you drank her wine. It's as if you took Babylon's wine and her sexual morality and her seduction and her rebellion against God and you said, I like that. I'll drink all of that down. I'll make that mine. And that's where you put your trust. And the announcement now in verse 8 is, there's a demand of the gospel, verse 8, and Babylon and those who have not met it, they're falling. But then beginning in verse 9, you get a picture of the judgment that is to come for God's enemies. And I set up the book this way, and this is most clear probably to this point in this chapter. The simple way to understand the book of Revelation, I think, in its most simplistic form, and, and this is not describing the whole book, but it is a thesis that runs through, is you have Christ's enemy, uh, the dragon, working through the beast, and you have the lamb. And if you identify with the lamb in this life, in this age, 
you're united with the Lamb by faith, you say, the Lamb is mine and I am His, then in this age you will suffer the wrath of the beast. Right? That's clear. Believers were suffering. Earlier in this letter, Christ was calling His people, some of you are going to be thrown in prison, be faithful to death. That's the wrath of the beast. That's what it cost them for being identified with a lamb. But you can also reverse that. You can identify yourself with the beast. You can go along with the world and, and in these oppressive states and, and other things that stand against Christ. You can say, I identify myself with the beast, with the enemies of Christ. He is not my Lord. And you can know the pleasure of the beast in this age. But in the end, you will face the wrath of the Lamb. You're going to be identified with one, and you're going to face the wrath of the other. Starting in verse 9, there's this clear message, you do not want to face the wrath of the Lamb. In verse 9, here's what we read. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, that's just, a, that's just a play on what the lamb has done, right? The lamb marked his own people out. Now the beast is marking his own. So you either belong to one or you belong to the other. Verse 10, He also will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. You've, you've drunk of Babylon's sexual immorality. Now you're going to drink of the wine of God's wrath, is the message. And he says specifically in verse 10, pour it out in full strength. You see, in that day, it was popular to cut wine. You can diminish the alcohol content if you just add a little water, right? So they would, they would cut wine, perhaps by a third, perhaps by a fourth, perhaps by a tenth, whatever. They would cut wine. They would dilute it. And then you could give it in full strength as well. Well, the message... That Jesus is sending is, unbelievers do face God's wrath in this life. We, we said that earlier from a text, right? Unbelievers in this life are living under a world that's been judged by God. They live in a sin-cursed world. At times, unbelievers are, are given over to their own sins that, that's destroying them. They should want to flee from it, but the Lord gives them over in His wrath so that they go after the very thing that's destroying them. That's God's judgment. But the message is, that's God's diluted judgment. That's the wine of God's wrath that's been cut. It's been diluted. But on that final day, they're going to drink of God's wrath poured out in full strength, verse 10 says. And then we could say a few things about the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I don't, I don't have them on this screen, but let me just note three things about the wrath of the Lamb according to verse 10 all the way to verse 20. Number one, the wrath of the Lamb is personal and eternal. The wrath of the Lamb is personal and eternal. Look at the second half of verse 10 and verse 11. And he, that is the one that's drinking down God's wrath in full strength, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Some have suggested God's wrath is just the consequences of your sin. It's just impersonal. It's not like God himself is punishing you. God's wrath is just your sin and it brings about bad things in your life. That's God's wrath. That's not the picture of verse 10. In the very presence of the Lamb, they're being tormented. This is the Lamb's personal judgment. And notice how long it lasts. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
Now, we might stop there and say, well, 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 that doesn't suggest necessarily that they're enduring it every day. I mean, maybe they could be annihilated or something or burned up and then the smoke just rises forever. And it's not like they're suffering every day. But read on verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Every unbeliever. I've said it a number of ways, or I've said it a number of times, but the answer to the question, in the end, will God allow people to go to hell, is no, He will throw them there. That's the testimony, right? It's personal, eternal torment at the hands of the Lamb. It's personal and eternal. Second, the wrath of the Lamb is certain and inevitable. The wrath of the Lamb is certain and inevitable. Now, turn real quickly, if you will, with me to Joel chapter 3. If your Bible's like mine, you'll find Joel 3 on page 762. If your Bible's not like mine, you'll find Joel after Hosea and before Amos. Joel 3 begins on page 762 of the Pew Bibles. And in Joel 3, if you have an ESV Bible, the heading is the Lord judges the nations. So Joel, uh, an Old Testament prophet, is now speaking of the nations receiving the wrath of God. They're, they're facing the judgment of God. And, and, he, and he says, now's the time where we're going to go to war. It says, if you're going to fight against me, but you're going to take my wrath. And so in verse 10, he says, beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves. So it's just the Lord's bringing His people. He's going to judge the wicked. Listen to what well, verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So God's about to judge the nations. And here how it's pictured, Joel 3, 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So God pictures His judgment as this scene of the harvest being ripe and a sickle reaping, gathering His enemies. And then the second part of the scene is the grapes being tossed into a wine press and tread out so that the juice from the vat flows out. What's going on in Revelation 14, then, when you go back to Revelation, verses 14 through 20, is the Lord is taking, the, John's taking that image, as the Spirit inspires him, John's taking that image from Joel, and he's showing us, I think, two realities about the Lord's judgment by taking each of those aspects. The Lord reaping and gathering for the harvest is ripe, and then the Lord treading out the grapes. And as I said, the, the first part of, of this, verses 14 through 16, shows that the wrath of the Lamb is certain and inevitable. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16, then captures this first half of the imagery. The time of harvest has come. Reap. You see, throughout many, many generations, believers have declared to the world, judgment is coming. And Peter tells us, the delay is going to be enough that people will begin to say, I don't think that's true. And they're going to mock. And the answer is, Peter says, the only reason there's a delay is because the Lord's being patient, giving them time to repent. But the day is coming. This is what Revelation 14, 14 through 16 is saying is, it may seem like it takes a while, but one day the harvest will be ripe. And the announcement will come to the Son of Man. Now the time for reaping is here. And the enemies of God will be reaped and gathered for judgment. A judgment we've already seen that is personal and eternal. And now we're going to see in verses 17 through 20, the wrath of the Lamb is violently furious or furiously violent. I, I just don't know how to say this point strong enough because this, I think, is one of the hardest and harshest images of judgment in all of the Bible. Do you remember the scene? Think about this again. The harvest of grapes. Here's how it would work. You would harvest the grapes with a sickle. You would gather the grapes. You would then put the grapes into this big wine press, this big vat. And what happened is, is uh, probably the slaves in this day would, would gather in the wine press and they would walk around with their feet and they would stomp the grapes, causing, as the grapes were stomped, causing the juice from the grapes to drain out through the openings in the wine press. So it would drain out and fill the surrounding area and now they had their juice for their wine. That's the picture here. But listen to what John does with this imagery. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Now stop here. What do we anticipate? And the juice flowed out of the winepress, right? But look what John says. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Or if you have your note in the Bible, the Yusuf says that's about 184 miles. You see what John's doing? He's saying the grapes, they're just a metaphor. What I'm saying is this, the wrath of the Lamb will be like Jesus taking His enemies and gathering them as one gathers grapes off the vine putting them in the winepress of His wrath and then stomping them out, crushing His enemies until their blood flows out of the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 184 miles. And I don't think the idea is 184 miles. 
right? In the book of Revelation, four means worldwide, complete, right? The four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, from every tongue, tribe, people, nation. Four is used to say worldwide, complete, all. The idea here from 1600, four times four, all of the earth, all of God's enemies are going to be judged four times four times a thousand, completely and perfectly, and it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. I mean, think of the images that the Lord uses of hell in the Bible. Uh, of fire that can't be quenched, a worm that does not die, and here, trodden out like grapes so that their blood runs out and fills the earth as high as the horse's bridle. This is a terrible picture of violent judgment. Why does God do that? Doesn't He know that we'll read that text and go, that makes me squeamish. Yes, He does know that. He's sending the message loud and clear. Identify with the Lamb and you may suffer at the hands of the beast. But identify with the beast and you will suffer at the hands of the Lamb and you don't want to suffer the, ram's, the Lamb's wrath. You don't want it. If you're not a believer this morning, don't make jokes about going to hell. It is terrible. The Bible tells us as ambassadors for God that believers are to go out and plead with men to be reconciled to God. Why would the Bible use that language? Paul says we implore men. We plead with them. Why does the Bible use that language? Because this is the wrath of the Lamb. So my question to you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, is this. Why would you die in your sins and face God's wrath? Why would you deny the Lamb and face His personal, eternal, violently furious, inevitable, and certain wrath. When this morning you can repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and who died and who was raised on the third day and be spared the wrath of the Lamb. Be reconciled to God. I plead with you this morning. If you're not a believer, I don't care how old you are, how young you are. If you're not a believer this morning, flee from the wrath to come. As John said, And look to the Lamb in faith as your only hope for salvation. If you'd like to me or somebody else to talk to you more about, we'd love to talk to you more about this after the service. Right now, you don't even have to talk to us. Just repent and place your faith in Lamb as your only hope for salvation. Now why? Let's just end asking this question. Why then does He give us this promise of joy, of benefit, of blessing? For the redeemed, why does He give us this warning of judgment, of harsh, violent, terrible judgment for the unbeliever? How are we to apply this? I think this is our application, my final point. Let this promise and this warning strengthen you to endure in the faith. Let this promise and this warning strengthen you to endure, strengthen you to persevere in the faith. Right after giving this promise of blessing, right after giving this warning of judgment, and right before giving another promise of blessing, verse 13, and right before giving another word of warning, verses 14 through 20, right in the middle of this promise, warning, promise, warning, right in the middle, verse 12, John writes, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. He says, you want to know what this is for? This is a call to endure. There are going to be times when you say, I just don't know if I can keep pressing on. I don't know if I can keep walking and holding the faith. It looks like the world is just great and, and those who are wicked and are denying the Lamb, they're having everything I want. I don't know if I can press on and you're despairing. And in those moments, remember this text, what Bunyan said, hold on to the promise of God. Hold on to the promise of God. At the end of this, we will celebrate victoriously with a lamb. I mean, imagine if you could talk about a saint who is no longer with us. What you would say to him, you would say, or what he would say to you. What would he say to you? It's worth it. It's worth holding to Christ. This life is so short. Eternity's forever. There will be times you'll need to hold on to the promise to find strength. And there will be other times when temptation to sin is great. There will be other times when temptation to deny the Lord and walk away from Him and, and, and perhaps even show that you were never truly a believer. John says in 1 John 2.19, Some went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be made evident they were never part of us. And maybe sometimes you face great temptation. And in those moments you say, it looks so alluring. And it looks like everything I want. And, and I need something to, to rescue me from this dungeon of temptation. And what do you do? You look to the warning. And you take up that warning as a key. I want to flee from the wrath of the Lamb. And let it be a key that unlocks the door of that dungeon of strong temptation. You see, there are times in our life where we need the promise. There are times in our life where we need the warning. But both of us have been given, both of them have been given to us by our Lord as a call to endure, a call to press on in faith. Therefore, this morning, what we're going to do, we close every service by coming to the table. And what it is for us this morning is it is a corporate response. This is our faith is in Jesus Christ. We're identifying with a lamb, even if it costs us the wrath of the beast in this life. That's our declaration. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, what you need to do is not partake of this bread and this cup. What you need to do is the first thing that Jesus tells us to do before you would come to this table. You need to be baptized and make public your faith in Jesus Christ. The way you do it is, is you do it through a visible symbol of saying, I've been united by faith with the one who died and who was raised. We show that by immersing in water and bringing out. If you're not a believer, place your faith in Christ and come and say, I want to make that profession public. If you are a believer, you've already professed faith in Jesus Christ, you're in good standing with an evangelical church, if you've not been under the discipline of that church or removed from that church for any reason, we want to invite you to join with us this morning as we make this corporate declaration that our faith is in the crucified and risen Lamb. So let's take a moment of silence now as we meditate on this text. The ushers get in place, the musicians get in place, then we'll distribute the bread and we'll distribute the cup and then we'll take of each of them together as a body. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.